Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. This podcast doesn't really have a specific theme. Uh, it covers a lot of my interests, it co- covers a lot of other people's interests, it goes into philosophy, spirituality, business, uh, how to live a good life, many different things. Ultimately, I don't believe in having themes for the things that we do. We can categorize the things, and obviously we categorize things all the time, uh, but I like to keep things open-ended, a continuous process of discovering the truth as it is. Uh, and the truth is tricky because we can't really get to the truth uh, exactly because the truth is nonlinear. It is, in the words of John Verveke, combinatorially explosive. Uh, even the truth of this window that I'm looking at, the window itself, the glass that makes up the window is combinatorially explosive. The cup that holds your water is combinatorially explosive. You cannot model that cup totally in your head. You're only getting an image of it in with your eyes and your brain. That's not the actual cup itself. Uh, so this, uh, this show is a discovery of truth wherever it may appear by talking to people from various different fields. I've talked to artists, engineers, entrepreneurs, investors, uh, refugees. I've, I've just talking to anybody who has a glimpse into the truth. Uh, and through this conversation, through this mutual inquiry into what is true, what is real, hopefully we get to something that is helpful for to you. Now, we are in a time of crisis right now, uh, but it is in those times of crisis that we find our strength. And so this show hopefully will help you to find the strength that is resting, that is deep inside of you, that is part of your birthright as a human being, uh, and find that strength so that you can get through these difficult times. Also, I want to let you know that I'm offering breathwork sessions uh, every day. I've got seven sessions a day uh, and really excited to bring this to people. People have been really enjoying it and it has brought strength to people and courage. And, and that's, my, that's my goal is to help you find the courage to uh, not only survive, but to thrive in the next couple years, maybe, because this virus is not going away. Um, it, it, usually viruses come in waves. Uh, so this is the first wave, it will go away, and then it might come back. I'm not saying that I know for sure it will come back, but we are in this for the long haul. So this is a uh, marathon, not a sprint, uh, and I want to do everything I can to help you not only survive, but to thrive. Uh, so if you are interested in that, please find me on Twitter, at Stuart Alsop, III. My DMs are open. I'd love to hear about what you think about this show. Uh, also, it'd be very, very kind of you to both subscribe to the show on Spotify, Stitcher, uh, iTunes, many of the major pot pl- platforms. And if you're really feeling generous, go ahead and give a review on iTunes. So join me for the breath work. Just send me a message on Twitter at Stuart Alsop III with your email, and I'll add you to the email list where I'm sending out emails for the schedule. Uh, hopefully see you there. Have a great day. So welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is Simon Chamorro. Uh, we're doing a live stream uh, and he's the CEO of co- and co-founder of Value. Uh, and welcome to the show, Simon. Thank you, Stuart. Yeah. Nice to be with you today. Yeah. So really excited to talk to you. What is Value? So Value is uh, basically a neobank for migrants. Um, and specifically, we're targeting Venezuelan migrants in South America. Because as you probably know, the country has lived a really bad political and economical situation during the past 
20 years, I would say. And in 2016, food shortages, uh, we had food shortages in Venezuela and um, the lower class started to migrate for the first time. But the thing is that they don't have enough money to pay for planes. So they just walked through the border to Colombia, Peru, Chile, and Ecuador. And since 2016, South America has seen the largest diaspora in its history, internal diaspora. And we're talking about six to seven million people that are living now in South America, which are migrants, refugees, you can call them whatever. But they now have the need to send money back home to their families to support them. But also, um, they don't have enough uh, credit history or paperwork to uh, get into the financial system to the countries where they're arriving. So we're basically building a way for them to send money back home initially, and in the second stage for them to save money in their phones, uh, almost like as a digital wallet. Um, and nobody's really targeting them. We're starting with Venezuela, and they're going to also target uh, Argentina and Mexico. Interesting. And um, I'm the first, the first piece of that is traditionally done by places like Western Union. Uh, and then I know there's, there's some cryptocurrency startups that have tried to do this as well. And I imagine that they're not, they're not, they haven't succeeded. At, uh, and I've heard of some in Africa that were doing something similar. Um, and, but Western Union is kind of like a ripoff, right? Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. yeah we actually, um, we were doing some tests and we went to Western Union because they apparently are now sending money to Venezuela, which we thought it was weird because Venezuela is a closed economy. And the only way you can send money to a closed economy is through a black market, uh, which is super dirty, or through crypto. Um, and we thought like, well, how is Western Union doing this? Because they actually had left uh, Venezuela after the whole political uh, situation. And we went there and they're charging around $20 to send money to Venezuela. And if you want to send $20, which is the average ticket uh, uh, that people are sending back home, uh, you're paying 100%. Um, for the transfer. So it's actually crazy. And in general, in average, internationally, Western Union charges 20% uh, globally, which is ridiculous uh, for sending money uh, to another country. And other crypto startups, uh, which is the reason why the one thing that we got into YC, into Y Combinator, is because of um, uh, a specific insight, right? And we saw that most crypto companies were building their own tokens, their own cryptos. And uh, the problem is that now they have to build liquidity. And the problem is that building liquidity is extremely, extremely hard. So we said like, well, what if we use existing cryptos uh, that already have existing liquidity to be the rails for um, moving fiat to fiat, we just buy, crypto locally with the with the, mm. with the local fiat and then we sell that crypto uh, in the country of destination um, for the local fiat which is directly transferred uh, to the recipient's bank account or uh, I'll, I'll explain specifically why because in Venezuela everybody has a bank account and cash is worthless so it's nice that you you brought up Africa because uh, in Kenya you have this company called Empesa and they were able to succeed because it was a very specific uh, situation. The same thing happens to us. Um, super specific, the reason why we can actually execute in this market. Uh, Venezuela has hyperinflation, there's no cash, everybody has a bank account, 
there's high liquidity of Bitcoin. In Colombia, the same thing, super high liquidity of Bitcoin. It's a, third, it's a fourth and fifth countries in the world with highest local liquidity. And, um, and then you have all this migration um, in, in, in Colombia that needs to send money back home. So it's super specific. But then we started like looking further and, and looking, well, can this solution be applied to some, some other corridors? And it, it is definitely, uh, it's, it's a big yes. Um, we've, we've achieved uh, very fast and very low cost transactions through the use of, of crypto rails uh, instead of banking uh, infrastructure. And so even for companies, we're looking in the future, next year, we're probably going to launch for international transfer for companies of so big volume. So if you want to pay employees across uh, borders in, in Peru, uh, you can pay them in one click. And, and so it can really, the technology per se can really be applied to uh, the, the crypto risk can be applied to any corridor, but we're going to focus initially on closed economies. And uh, that means Venezuela, uh, Argentina right now, because they're uh, imposing capital controls uh, as we speak which is important, uh, an important piece of the puzzle for us to be a solution in that country. Um, we're, we think that Argentina's might be migrating soon if the country goes in the, same, in the direction that we think is going to happen because it's the, the same thing that happened in Venezuela. Mm -hmm. Argentina is kind of like, it's a mirror to that. Uh, and then we have Mexico, which is an interesting thing, which already has migration. A lot of migration in the U.S. is actually the biggest corridor in the Western Hemisphere uh, for sending remittances between the United States and Mexico, but they don't have um, capital controls. However, uh, the new president, which is also uh, a guy from, he's a little bit of a left-wing guy. Um, he is looking to uh, tax the, the rich, basically, uh, for the things that they have outside of Mexico. So it's a, it's a, it's a somewhat a, uh, like a capital control thing. And we're starting to see trends in the whole continent is South America and Central America of this. So hopefully uh, we can be a solution to all those countries and the, the people that, uh, that actually are the, the people that are get uh, affected by these situations at the end. So that's really interesting. So you're a crypto company, but you're not a crypto company. Because <laughs> you're a crypto yeah. company, you're, you're, you're using the infrastructure that Bitcoin has created, uh, but then you're, you're using that as a pipe, basically. And it's a beautiful pipe because it's outside of the control of, of any centralized government. Um, and then you're essentially using the fiat currency within the economy, and then you're using the, the Bitcoin to, to transfer uh, across the economy. That's really interesting. Um, and yeah. I imagine must be kind of nerve wracking for you as well uh, as, as cause you know, you're, you're, you're facing these governments um, which don't want you to do that essentially. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a good question. Um, dude, initially when, uh, when I started a company, I had to think long and hard um, because once we knew what we had in our hands, once we knew we had this solution and we wanted to execute uh, the question was like, Will I go to jail or will I actually become a successful entrepreneur and a successful company that solves a, a, a big problem, right? And, uh, and yeah, one day I was like, man, you know, uh, I'm Venezuelan. Um, I've been in startups and in tech for a, lot of, a long time. Uh, I want to start my company. 
if I'm gonna do something, it has to make sense for me. And this just made a lot of sense. And I was like, man, I'm gonna risk it all. And uh, I went for it. And so far, uh, we've been setting the security protocols uh, for us to be kind of like hard to find. But um, but yeah, uh, that's that's what we're facing. Yeah, that is, that is really cool. So I want to talk more about kind of Venezuela and growing up there. How long? Uh, how long ago did you move from there to either Colombia or outside of Venezuela? So the, um, so my mom is Colombian. My dad is Venezuelan, which has helped a lot having double nationality. Um, the first time I left the country was in uh, 2007. Uh, I went to play soccer for a Real Madrid uh, young, young team mm. um, when I was uh, 13. I played there for two years and decided to quit because um, it's incredible, man. Like you get to that level and then there's another level, which is this natural skill. So I realized that when I was very young, I saw the best players getting kind of like drafted already for the first division teams. And I didn't see myself there. So I, I quit it when I was 15, went back home, finished high school, and then uh, got a scholarship for doing industrial design in Savannah College of Art and Design. It's a school in Georgia, in, the, in, in Georgia, yeah. and uh basically i did four years graduated worked in miami and the thing about industrial design which i never actually kind of like executed i never became an industrial designer but it gave me the the tools to think that anything can be done better uh that everything should be do should be done designed better and in business that mindset it's it's quite powerful um, for not only for like building a company or whatever, even like for the day-to-day -day decisions, you're always kind of like thinking, how can I do this better? How can I improve? How can I design my day? How can I design my time? How can I design everything that I do? And um, that's kind of like the message that I uh, uh, kind of like, that's what I learned from, from school mostly. But when I came to uh, my first job, I did it UX in a company accelerator called Rocker Labs in Miami. And that company, one of the founders was Colombian. So after one year in the OPT, which is a visa extension that as an international student in the US, you get a visa extension for working one year. They transferred me to Colombia. When I came to Colombia, because my mom's Colombian had two nationalities, I was impressed with the ecosystem. I was impressed with the country itself. Colombia has been a poor country for decades decades because um, they had an internal war with the guerrilla. Um, but lately with the peace treaty and everything that has been going, uh, the, the oil, oil also, oil prices came up and economy started to, to flourish. And um, when I first arrived to Colombia, this, I, I was impressed. The startup ecosystem was uh, starting to arise. Rappi was just launching. Lifted, which is another company that I work for, uh, was just launching. In Colombia, even though it's a small country between inside of South America, has proven to be, I think, the place where most the best entrepreneurs come from, uh, or the best or the biggest companies are coming from. So, um, yeah, I stayed here, super happy. I've been here for four years, and uh, it's been a great experience. Yeah, I've been I've been noticing something interesting happening, particularly in Bogota, because you have. Uh, Rappi was started there and then there was uh, another startup Platzi uh, also another YC Combinator also in Bogota um, uh, and it's interesting because there's Bogota but then there's also Mexico City 
Um, do you have any plans to, to kind of check that out? Because I believe that Mexico City is kind of becoming like a big um, gravity swell for a lot of startups because you can both access the Latin American market from there and build solutions for the Latin American market, but then also have um, much closer kind of connection with the United States. Although Colombia has a lot of connections with the United States as well. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, you know, Mexico, Brazil as well. I, I think those two are the biggest like central points in South America for uh, and, and biggest economies in a way, you know, so the city of Mexico, I think it's like 20 million people living there. Uh, Sao Paulo as well. So they're huge cities, huge economies, super dense, super populated. So you can you can start a company there and test something and try things really quick. Um, so they're great for that. For me, uh, I really want to focus right now on solving the Venezuela problem. So here in Colombia, we have a lot of market to grow. You know, there's... $10 billion being sent to Venezuela on a yearly basis. Uh, and it's completely unattended. Like that's not much in, in, the, in, the, in, in an order of magnitude uh, globally, but um, the fact that it's an unattended market, is huge. So um, we really want to dominate uh, this market and to be honest, get a monopoly here. Um, and we're analyzing as we go. Well, we do this, I think it's going to take us a little bit like a one year, two year tops. And we're going to expand to Mexico, either Mexico or Argentina. Mm -hmm. um, so depending on the funding as well, we can do both. Uh, but like I was mentioning, Argentina has capital controls, no migration. So let's see if the migration happens. Mexico has migration, no capital controls. So let's see the capital controls get, get imposed. So depending on those two things, um, the decision will, will be made. And that is really interesting, especially as we seem to be entering an age of kind of global political contraction where uh, the la like in the United States, we've kind of had this, this theory. I don't know if you've ever heard of the book, The End of History. Did you ever hear about that book, The End of History? I haven't. No, so it's written by Francis Fukuyama in the late 90s. Um, a political historian and theorist, he said that basically we have reached the end of history. There will be no more history. Uh, basically, we've reached this kind of, um, not, it's a uh, liberal, neoliberal kind of paradise where the United States is in power and is going to remain in power for a very long time and is going to remain dominant. And basically, the history as we know it has come to an end. It turns out he was very, very wrong. Uh, and that, you know, like history has now essentially established itself again. And we do seem to be going through a period of transition. The United States is going to remain dominant for a long time, but relative dominance is going to change. Basically, I mean, China has a middle class, the, which is the entire size of the United States. They have 300 million people in their middle class, which is the entire size of the United States. Uh, Russia has power, but you know, a lot of problems. India in terms of their knowledge is going to just revolutionize, particularly connected with the internet. Um, you know, you have so many young people in India, like in China is declining in terms of its, its um, power. And then you have Africa, like Nigeria, uh, Brazil, you have Latin America. And, and, but there's going to be a lot of transition and a lot of crazy stuff that's about to happen over the, over the next five to 10 years for, from my point of view. And it does seem like you guys have an interesting insight into, because Venezuela is like the first example of what might be down the road for a lot of other countries in terms of populist 
risings and things like that. Totally. I totally agree with you, man. And um, we never, honestly, we didn't plan for this. Like, um, we, I, I, honestly, when I started this company, uh, we found, we wanted, my my co-founder, myself, we wanted to do something with crypto and we wanted to do because we just fell in love with it. And when when Ethereum came out, actually, when Bitcoin came out, we didn't know much about it. And then smart contracts came out. Uh, we were working in the same company. This, this was 2014. Um, and we sort of like, oh my God, this, what, what is this? You know, he actually went, my co-founder went on to build a crypto ATM company in Florida. Mm-hmm. And I, I was moved to Colombia. And then we met again in Colombia and we said like, dude, we, we just clicked. And let's say, we said, let's do something with crypto that, that is actually solving a real problem. And we and Venezuela was a perfect place because a lot of crypto adoption because of the political and economical situation. And we're like, well, there's a lot of people mining. There's a lot of people buying crypto. What should we do? And so we pivoted three times. And I'm not going to get into the details, but we pivoted three times until we found this solution. And um, it's just perfect. It's um, honestly, I, I haven't seen much crypto companies um, solving real problems with the, with this technology. And so. I need to tweet more about it. I need to start talking more about it to show this example because the world, I think, needs to see that it's that it has a use. It has a real use case. Um, and even if crypto companies get excited when they hear about us. Uh, I was just in Mexico with the founder of Bitso, and he's like, "Dude, you have to come to my office and talk to my employees about what you do because they're here every day building code, and our users are just buying crypto, but they don't have a purpose behind it, right?" Um, and so um, it, it really just started like that. But little by little, um, we've seen that the world is actually going in a direction where with democracies, which is a name we invented, in my opinion, because it's um, governments of, um, of representatives, of uh, republics, which is actually, you don't see the word democracy in the US Constitution or in the French Constitution. It's, um, it's representative republics, basically. You vote for somebody, you give them full power for four years to do whatever they want, <laughs> pretty much. And now with the parliament, uh, if they win all the like the, the majority, it's kind of like a, it's almost like a like a dictatorship, right? And so uh, we've seen that the, the the political systems in the world are not working that well. And so what that is kind of like the risk for most countries um, that it can be most countries can be hacked easily. Um, and um, it all started in Russia, in my opinion. Then it spread through Cuba. In Cuba, it happened really quickly. Then from Cuba to Venezuela, from Venezuela to in, you know, and on and on and on. And so, uh, yeah, man, it's it, I, I completely agree with you on that on that end. Uh, hopefully, we can be a solution. Unluckily, this is happening in the world. Um, but um, but the way we see it, instead of like, hey, let's hope that some some country goes to shit, we're, we're saying like, well, if they go to shit, we'll be there. Yeah. Well, and, and it's the, this is the really kind of promise of Bitcoin, I think, essentially, is that, and I, I, the design of it as well was designed so that they had 2008 uh, and the financial crisis that kind of ripped through the economic system of the world. Um, uh, and the taking, you know, I'm, I'm, I might feel free to 
criticize what I'm about to say because I'm not an expert in this at all. But uh, you know, you have monetary controls, or you basically detached the U.S. dollar from the gold reserve as a kind of a basis for for the value of the U.S. dollar. You can print money like crazy, and then um, in 2008 you have like the fallback from that and maybe the first fallback and we're probably going to see another fallback from that. It looks like, you know, this is, this is not ending anytime soon, this kind of changing money from, and then they created Bitcoin, which is essentially, you know, the, uh, the mining capacity, the, the proof of work is established some sort of value that people believe in that's tied to this currency, which has been around for 10 years now. Um, and you know, the longer something's been around, the longer it's going to continue to be around generally according to the Lindy effect. So it's, it's established this currency that is outside the political control of different governments. Although there is a nuance to that, which is that, you know, a, something like Coinbase does have influence from the government in China, the government does have influence on the miners. So there is, there is influence, but it is essentially that is no, no one government has control over the actual currency itself. Um, and w what I think is very elegant, which you guys have done, is essentially used it as that thing, which is the international currency that it is. Like if I wanted to send you money and we're not doing anything illegal, it w then, then I could send you money today using Bitcoin with no, no transaction things. Um, uh, and the government yeah. won't care because we're not doing anything Ill illegal. Um, so I think it's, there's something interesting there. And it does serve as this kind of bulwark against a crazy government totally um the, the talking about like what we do and uh for me i've never been kind of like a you know fuck the government kind of thing i've always been like you know unfortunately it, it the, the the infrastructure and uh, and how governments work are not super efficient today and so if we can be more efficient if we can even like work with them that's great um, because we do want to work with them, right? If we want to grow a lot and we want to actually become a big company, we need to work with local banks. And so that's what we're offering fiat to fiat uh, transfers. We're, we're, we're not saying, hey, just pay in Bitcoin. We'll give you Bitcoin wallets. We're actually saying, hey, we're taking your fiat and converting it to fiat. We're just using crypto for now. And this is kind of like a way to show uh, what we do. And the interesting part that I, that I completely love about this is that Remittances have uh, today in the in the banking infrastructure. One of the, the reasons why it is so expensive is because no government government wants uh, capital uh, fleeing their country. Mm. Um, they want to keep their capital in the country, so that's why they put so many kind of like taxes and like high kind of like cost licenses. And with with this system, when when you buy crypto locally, you're just taking the local fiat and giving it to somebody else locally and you're receiving this digital asset that just mirrors the value of what well, of the local fiat and then you can transfer it somewhere else but you're not there's no capital leaving the country it's just a mirror that it's happening and it's a redistribution of capital locally and then another redistribution of capital in the country of destination because in the country of destination you're selling that crypto to somebody locally that transfers the money to the remittance recipient um, and so this redistribution of capital um, is quite interesting because it allows us to bypass a lot of the remittance regulation. And we, we honestly, like legally in Colombia, we're just a uh, crypto buyer and seller. Um, 
well, and we're not we're not a remittance company legally uh, because we we're not taking money out of the country and putting it somewhere else. We're just buying crypto and then selling crypto. Um, and so and so yeah, man. Um, I honestly think that uh, but but for us to grow, um, Bitcoin has been great for close economies, I would say, uh, and for authoritarian governments. Um, and, and, and talking about like, people don't need to trust in Bitcoin today for our system, which is the, the, the interesting thing. In, this, in stage two, talking about trust, and in stage two of the company, we're gonna allow people to, to save money on this digital wallet. And the problem is that our, our users are low financial and low technical literacy. So we're targeting a user that is super fucking hard to target <laughs> and through a mobile app. So, but people know the dollar. People don't know the Bitcoin. People, they're starting to know it here in Venezuela and Colombia because it's just so, so big here. Um, but people don't know about DAI. People don't know about Ethereum. People don't know about all that, right? Um, and so we want to give people dollars. And the way for us to do this is through stable coins. And, um, we're going to just say like, you have $10 and we're going to put in big letters, USD. And then the other letter that is whatever crypto we decide to use, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. super tiny. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, people are going to believe that they have dollars, but they in reality have, uh, have stable coins, right? So talking about the stable coins, which one are we going to use? Because like I mentioned, we are not going to build our own crypto. We don't want to do anything with that. We want to leverage existing liquidity and existing uh, cryptos that already exist. So we're, we're seeing DAI, uh, which is an algorithmic um, st stablecoin, which we love. Uh, we're seeing Reserve uh, because they're super hands-on and they're, being, they're actually in Venezuela getting their hands dirty. And they're the only ones in the crypto space from San Francisco that are actually doing shit. Um, we, we're seeing you know, Stellar. Uh, which has great technology for international payments. And we're seeing an seller with Anchor USD. And so we're, we're, we're making this decision. We, and we, and we, we realize that the main thing that we need is liquidity. And which is a business liquidity that USDT, Tether. And even though Tether has all this bad reputation, <laughs> and it, it's, still, it's still the most liquid, still what people trust. People don't give a fuck if it's backed by anything man like as long as there's trust um around that um uh, things things become some somewhat stable i would say and so um it's an interesting thing it's an interesting phenomena because um i'm not an economist but uh, a lot of my friends that are economists tell me that even the, U the united states economy is not backed by anything mm -hmm. uh, when you actually go down to the nitty-gritty uh, it's not backed by by anything. So, uh, but but pe people trust the U.S. dollar. So, um, we'll see what happens in the next few years. I hope the U.S. dollar keeps being this the kind of like the international kind of like value currency that people value, or the U.S. dollar or or crypto. But uh, it really scares me to think that China is gaining so much power, yeah. um, specifically I with their yeah. I mean, I personally don't see a future in which the yuan, the Chinese yuan, will become the the dominant global currency. I mean, maybe maybe if if they increase their their uh, kind of influence in Africa and in and in uh, and in Latin America to the point where in like 10, 15, 20 years, 
that they have so much influence that the yuan is actually used. But I don't I don't see that happening because China has so many issues. Um, like uh, it, it's and, they, and everybody in China knows that like the people running the country know that they have a lot of issues like a declining birth rate. Uh, the lack of like resources that they can essentially use in the state of a, of a worldwide conflict. Like um, I, th I think so it's, it's, which is scary, but uh, because they have such a large population and so many people have moved from poverty into, uh, into abundance. And now like if you start to have that change uh, that's going to become very scary for the global economic system. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah. Specifically, because you know, I was talking with uh, with this with a friend recently, and um, poverty is kind of like um, it's relative. I would say I was just in Colombia, in here in Colombia, in the highest, in the most dense uh, uh, place in the world. It's called Islote de San Bernardo or San Bernardo Island. It's off the coast of Colombia, 1,400 people living in a super tiny area, and they are super away from like society. And they're not poor in food, right? They, these guys uh, fish all day, they're strong, they're happy, they have a community, they have all this even, I'm not gonna get into the details because I, I talked to them for a while, but they have a lot of rituals. One of the ones I love the most is that when somebody gets sick, everybody pitches in, and they get like a like a boat, like a like a wooden canoe, and they pay for gas, and they take them to Cartagena, which is like three hours away in boat uh, <laughs> from the island. And they have all these things, and they are like they're rich in some ways, but very poor in education and all these things. What happened with the industrial revolution, specifically in China, is now you're bringing all these people from the fields into the city. Now they have knowledge. Now they are now they are, now they understand what it is to be rich. You know they, they have all these concepts and they're they're observing all these things, but they're just workers. And with the automation that is coming for the industrial kind of sector, uh, you're gonna have all these people without jobs, uh, but they're already rich in context, and so they're gonna become very poor uh, because they already know. Uh, they're really immersed in our world kind of thing. So I don't know why we got into this, but, uh, but yeah, I was talking about this. Like, I think like some, some big challenge, we're going to have some big challenges coming and I don't know if UBI is the solution. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people talk about it, but you know, we need more solutions. We need to test these things, you know? So I'd love to talk, uh, talk now more about the rise of startups outside of Silicon Valley and maybe how you guys got into Y Combinator as well. Um, and then like, what is the significance of like you starting a company outside of Silicon Valley, but still kind of having the thread here as well? Yeah. Um, so I, I was lucky enough to uh, go to school in, in the United States, uh, which is where kind of like my English got better because I've been studying English since I was very young. Um, but um, I was also lucky that one of the founders of a company that I worked for here in South America was coming from San Francisco. And um, I was hired as the, as the head, head of sales and he was coming from with all this knowledge, all this kind of like street knowledge. Um, I would, I would I'll call it street knowledge, but um, from, from, the, from Silicon Valley that no, that people here don't have. And so, um, because of my English, we got along really well, more, more than most people. 
and he was taking me to all his investor meetings. Um, whenever he needed some help, uh, I would like get into the conversation with investors and I trained with him almost for like two years. Um, and so that really helped a lot to understand how to start a company, kind of like the zero to one kind of thing, uh, which is always really, really hard. And so um, I would say that mentors have, have helped a lot for me. And some people say like, hey, um, if you want to start a startup, just do it. Uh, and like people from Silicon Valley, I've, I've heard podcasts about this, like, oh, just do it. But for me, honestly, it, like coming from South America, uh, it was super, super uh, impactful and rich to work for uh, half mentors that, that already knew what, we, that, what we're doing and become friends with them and go to run with them every Sunday, um, see their problems and kind of like, Almost, I was almost like a founder when I was hired for these companies. I would work Monday to Sunday, you know, very hard all the time. And I was not expecting anything back. I was just happy to be learning all these things. So that helped a lot. And when the time came um, to start my company, I already knew what to do, which is simple. is open a Delaware um, corporation, uh, very standard, uh, open a US bank account, uh, that's where you're going to get all, use the safe, uh, <laughs> standard YC safe. Um, we also have like an upper hand here in South America, which is way cheaper. Uh, talent is cheaper. Offices are cheaper. So we started with a $50,000 check and that uh, gave us the enough runway to like me, my co-founder, and even two hires for quite a while. And, and, and we were able to show uh, that we were able to execute. Um, and little by little, I started, you know, bringing in more checks as we were showing numbers, we were showing traction. Um, and in March of last year, uh, of this year, uh, I decided to apply for YC. Um, and since I've been in sales, uh, when I was in Rocker Labs, I quickly switched from UX to sales. So I've been doing sales and business development for my, most of my career. And Basically, I used those skills to apply for YC. What, what, what did I do? I reached out through LinkedIn, to LinkedIn through all these founders um, and basically had like a funnel of 200 founders, which 50 replied, 20 gave me feedback, uh, and around 10 gave me inter like, inter like mock interviews. So it was like a constant process of writing feedback, writing feedback, writing feedback, and getting to... Um, the one thing that YC loves is no BS, no bullshit. So how to write uh, very concise and how to explain what you do. Uh, they, they call it the granny test. If you can explain it to your, explain what you do easily to your grandmother, then then you have something, right? <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of like how we got into YC, uh, and we basically were able to execute. Um, we, we showed that we had some good insights and that the, the market it, it was the right time in the right market. Basically. And it's so interesting because we talked a little bit about this before, uh, before we started recording about how your, your English allowed you to enter this whole world. But for other founders in Colombia who don't have this good command of English or who don't kind of read naturally in English, they won't get access to Paul Graham's episode, um, essays. They won't get access to kind of, uh, you know, who, who are some Jason Lemkin, like all of these people who are like creating this content in English. 
um, but that it doesn't get translated over into Spanish. Uh, and I'm, I wonder if you have any other thoughts on that and like what, what you see, because that's what I want to do for this show once I get down to Colombia is to start doing a lot more interviews in Spanish because it's, it's not that there isn't that content, but the content there is, I imagine in Spanish isn't related to the actual difficulty and the truth and the kind of like how hard it is to start a company. And like, the, like you said, that street smarts that only comes from somebody who's doing yeah. it. Yeah, I think there's, uh, if, if we can like split knowledge in like three tiers, um, the, the first tier, um, we might, we might have it here. The, sec the second tier starting to happen little by little. Some of the new companies that are, you know, Rappi, Newbank, all these companies that are flourishing, hiring all this talent, raising all this money, and the knowledge is starting to spread kind of in like this second tier, but then you have third tier knowledge, which is the knowledge that you can read from, you know, Peter Thiel, Paul Graham, all these guys that are, that is like not only super um, specific, but it's also uh, um, shared in a very technical uh, grammar um, and uh, in English, which is, um, which completely changes the context, which completely changes the meaning of what they're sharing, right? And so that is the type of knowledge that you don't get here in Spanish and that will, that will completely change things. But yeah, most people, man, like uh, I know so many entrepreneurs that it's, it's hard because right now I don't really have the time to be like, hey, I'll help you out. At the beginning, I was a little bit more like that. Um, hopefully I can find the time in the future to be more helpful, but there's so many entrepreneurs uh, that just don't know what they're doing here. And it's shitty because a lot of them are smart. Um, they're just like, they just don't have the tools um, um, and to, to, to be better. And so I think uh, if you want to do a Spanish content, that would be, that would be super helpful. Um, and the more people that is doing this, the better. Um, and uh, the one thing that I, I was always thought it would be really impactful is to have something like, uh, like a software, um, a podcast or like a, something software that translates in Spanish and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's audio. Um, and you can, you can even translate like Paul Graham articles to Spanish in audio. That would be great, you know, because uh, also <laughs> I've seen that most people in, in Latin America don't read that much. <laughs> people here like to listen more and to watch more videos, uh, mostly. So audio is powerful for sure. Interesting. And that's something that's only happening in the U United States recently is this move towards audio and move towards podcasts, because traditionally on the Internet, if you're you just read something um, and then only recently has it turned to audio. But that's interesting in Latin America because the primary way that I've seen people communicate there and I actually picked up the habit myself was using WhatsApp to send voice messages. And if you think about it, 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 it is easier. I, I have, I am like, I would now much rather send a voice message. If it's not something specific, like, Hey, do you want to meet at this time? Or like something like that. If it's something more like an expression, like, Hey, you know, this, these are all my thoughts about this subject It's way, way easier to send a voice message, but you don't do that in the United States. Like people find it weird. Um, like, <laughs> I don't know if you've had that <laughs> experience before. It's, it's, it's tough. It's a, it's a, it's, I, I'm, I'm very opinionated on this one, um, <laughs> like most things, but I, I think, 
I tried not to use voice note, voice notes, even though I'm here in, in South, in you know, in Spanish in South America, because I think voice notes are rude. <laughs> I think voice notes uh, make the the counterparty uh, have more job. You're giving the job to the counterparty, where it's like, hey, I'm gonna ramble for like a minute, and then you have to pick up on the things that I want to say. And the one thing that I learned in YC is how to say things concisely. Mm -hmm. So I'm always practicing that. Like, mm -hmm. even like if I want to ramble for two minutes, I'm like, well, what, is, what do I really want to say in these two minutes? And then I try to send the text, which is, in my, in my opinion, like a respectful way with the counterparty. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I think, so yeah, what you're saying is that writing is even more concise than audio or then speaking yeah if you can if you can convey your idea or what you want to express in writing mm. um and, and it's also almost like a like a demonstration of, of intelligence also i would mm. say yeah mm -hmm. and i agree with that but i think that the there is something about voice which emotionally gets lost in text because there's so much tone and there's so much um, emotion and, and other types of signals that get wrapped up in voice. And then you add video to it as well. And then video becomes a whole nother, then you get body language and everything like that. So I think it depends on the message. And that might be more like if, if it, it, it makes more sense to send voice messages if you're with your friends or your like, or like your lovers or something like that. But, but if it's with a, in a business sense, then I think you're right that the that the shorter, concise way of sending the message is the more important part. Totally, um, yeah, it definitely depends on the context. For me, I love again, I love podcasts. Uh, I stopped listening uh, music uh, while I'm not doing. The only reason, the only moments I listen to music is while I'm doing sports hmm. or gym or something like that. But if I'm in the office and I want to like put my headphones on and I usually listen podcasts when I'm walking uh, from point A to point B. Podcast and um, and yeah, I think for some for some things it's better audio, but if for like um, kind of like messaging communication yeah. between two people, mm. text uh, should, I think it should be should be better. Yeah. <laughs> so, and you were on a Spanish speaking podcast. Uh, how big is the market for Spanish speaking podcast? Is it growing? What's the deal with that? Um, it is, uh, some, some, a, a lot of the YC companies, there's a few YC companies and uh, there's one in Mexico, um, that is doing Spanish, uh, uh podcasts. Um, and so, um, you know, the name? like, you know, yeah, um, I can share with you in one second. There's so many YC companies, man. <laughs> I forget the names. Um, we have a YC WhatsApp group. Uh, it's called YC of the South. <laughs> All of the South American companies that have been through YC. That's cool. um, and uh, there's this girl who is the CEO of this, uh, this podcast. Um, I heard she's super sharp. I don't know her personally. Um, all right. Mm -hmm. If you want, I can share with you after this. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll get it from you later. Um, well, this has been really cool. And I'm going to ask one more question to wrap it up. Um, is there a question that I haven't asked yet that I should have asked you? Um, let me see. I think 
what um, more than what what you should ask. I think something that I want to say. Uh, I think it's it's more important. Um, I, I was hearing the po this podcast this podcast from uh, Peter Thiel today, uh, and he was explaining how Anna Karenina uh, in, in her book she talks about how all happy families are unhappy in some ways uh, in that in businesses um, uh, it's the opposite uh, all the, 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 the saying it, it goes like all companies that are happy are doing something that is completely different right mm -hmm. um, where employees are happy are doing something that is completely different all companies that are really unhappy in the end are, something, are doing something that is just the same and today I also saw uh, a tweet from this guy from A6C, the Andreessen Horowitz, and he was saying, you know, all these ex-Ubers are making a lot of impact in the world. Uh, scooter companies in Singapore, um, cloud kitchens in whatever. And it's like, dude, like everybody's doing scooter companies, uh, everybody's doing cloud kitchens, everybody's doing all these things. And um, Peter Thiel is saying that most of these people that work for these companies are in the end not so happy. They might just be there just for the opportunity and they might change jobs quickly. So I've seen that the fact that we're doing something so unique, uh, my team, I've been, I've been super excited about my team and like so proud to be part of this. Uh, they're all amazing and they're just like really uh, aligned with the vision of helping uh, migrants, uh, building a digital bank for the unbanked, uh, helping, uh, like getting into closed economies, which is quite exciting, you know, and like, like everything that we do is like super adrenaline high. And, um, and so we're doing something really different and we're paving the way and it's, it's hard. Uh, raising money has been hard. We've already raised over a million dollars, but the next, the hardest thing is about to come. Um, and that's fine. I think we're paving the way, like Uber did at other time, like Airbnb did at their time. We're building a new infrastructure, banking infrastructure, built in crypto. And uh, and so I think um, that's just something that um, it's important for people to take into account. If founders are listening to me, it's like, man, uh, don't just start a company. Uh, just like try to try to really find something that makes you passionate and that is something new and it's gonna that is gonna be way harder than just raising some millions of dollars and buying scooters in China and launching an app, right? And so um, yeah, it's kind of like that's my that's my kind of like uh, suggestion uh, to to wrap it up. Cool. Well, thank you so much. And how can people find out more about you and more about uh, value? Uh, so uh, you can find me on Twitter, uh, Chamorro Design at Chamorro Design. It's uh, my last name and design. And um, and about value, you can find us on triple uh, www.value.com. Value is spelled differently. It's V A L I U, <laughs> almost like the drug, like value, but without the M. Uh, but even in English and in Spanish, people pronounce it. As value so uh, uh -huh. that's the reason we chose the name uh value.com uh we also have our app is actually just in spanish because we're on this market but you can also find us on linkedin uh you can look at me up on linkedin uh, i don't have instagram i don't have facebook <laughs> i'm closing those out cool but um yeah it's funny because uh I, I i always pronounce it value like uh there's a there's a portuguese slang word in brazil 
uh, value, which means like cool. Um, and so I thought yeah. I, I thought it was related to that, but, uh, but cool. Thank you so much, Simon. Thank you, Stuart. It was great talking to you. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll be publishing episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday in the morning. If you did enjoy this episode, please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, many of the major podcasting platforms, and go ahead and give us a review. And also subscribe. And as always, I'm on Twitter, at Stuart Alsop, III. Come join the conversation as we aim towards the truth. And the funny thing about truth is that you can't really put it into words because every time you put the truth into words you create a linear narrative out of something that is non-linear the truth is non-linear it's not it's it's if you really recognize the truth right now your mind wouldn't know what to do it'd be overwhelmed by beauty and pain or it's it's something that is beyond our linguistic capability to represent but that doesn't mean that the language isn't helpful. Language can point us in the direct, right direction, but it's, it's, not, it's not the truth itself. And so come join this collective inquiry into the truth. Find me on Twitter, at Stuart Alsop, III. Uh, subscribe to the podcast. Share the podcast with your friends. Uh, most people don't have the ability to let go of this linguistic understanding of the way that the world works and just aim for the truth regardless of what the language tells us uh, and so i think what i'm doing with this the show is is necessary for us because as we enter this stage of uncertainty uh, and we are most definitely entering an age of uncertainty and as we do it's really really important that we stop paying attention to what the mind is telling us all the time doesn't mean to say that the mind doesn't have its place. The mind obviously has its place, but it's just one of the senses. It's just one of the tools that we can use. We can use the mind, we can use the feelings, we can use our actual senses. Uh, we can check our intuition with other people because sometimes the intuition tells us the wrong thing as well. Sometimes the intuition is wrong. So it, we, can't, we can't rely on any one tool to get us there. So come join the show, find us on iTunes, Find us on Twitter, at Stuart Alsop, III, uh, and come join the, this inquiry for truth. <laughs>